Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 938. To kick off today's show, David Lorelow welcomes Josh Rowich to the program, the new president of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Josh shares things like his vision for the hall going forward, the most popular features and plaques in the museum, and just how much the element of fame factors into player voting. Josh also shares his personal journey to his new role, including David making a pretty insightful guess back in the spring. For readers who don't know, I actually mentioned Josh as a possible candidate for this job back in an <laughs> April Sunday notes column. Blew my mind. If it started making its way, you'll get a kick out of this. That it, When you wrote that, I had already been having a couple discussions and I just thought, man, how did he know that? After that, Dan Zimborski and Jay Jaffe get together to talk about the Yankees and Mets, two New York clubs that seem to be surging in opposite directions right now. Jay recently wrote about Nasty Nestor Cortez, a player Dan didn't even have a Zips projection for this preseason, who has surprisingly been a big part of the Yankees' recent pitching success. Jay and Dan also begin talking about how the Mets have helped themselves spiral lately, and believe it or not, we got the news of the front office's latest missteps in the middle of our recording on Wednesday, so the conversation naturally shifted to their chronic dysfunction. You know, if you don't have good leaders, it's very tough to build a good organization, and it's very clear right now that the Mets do not have good leaders. You can understand that, you know, Steve Cohen coming in last winter did not have time to do the full organizational remake that was probably due but this is just another black eye for the organization. But before we get to these segments, I must point you to the Fangraphs.com shop. We have merch and memberships, and we recently added a new member feature. On top of being able to browse the site blazingly fast and ad-free, and in dark mode, you can now download Excel workbook files from our roster resource pages. We continue to add new features for you, and we couldn't do it without your help. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is Josh Rawich, the new president of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Prior to stepping into his position, Josh served as the senior vice president of communications for the Arizona Diamondbacks. That is actually where I first met Josh there in spring training. I think Josh was the VP of communications for the Dodgers before going to Arizona. So, Josh, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. It's my honor. Thanks so much for having me, David. I think I got those details, right? Sounds about right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's my history. Your history. yeah, And now your history is going to continue in Cooperstown, New York, which I don't know when the idea first crossed your mind that you were A, a candidate, and B, that it was a life change that you and your family were going to make. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not the sort of thing that I think you grow up necessarily thinking, hey, maybe someday I'll live in Cooperstown. I mean, we all know exactly where it is and we know what it means to the game of baseball, but it really was Jeff Idelson who kind of first planted the seed, who was the longtime president here uh, and then came back as interim president the last four months as when, when Tim Mead stepped down. And he said, look, I think you'd be a perfect sort of person to replace that role and kind of led to obviously many conversations with my wife, who's a New Yorker by birth. And before long, kind of went through the really cool interview process and the, the search committee, which was everyone from Jane Forbes Clark to the commissioner of baseball to Cal Ripken Jr., Harvey Schiller, really interesting people that I got a chance to meet through the process. And we landed here about two weeks ago in Cooperstown getting ready for induction next week which we will talk about the induction ceremony soon. But first, I should bring up, for readers who don't know, I actually mentioned Josh as a possible candidate for this job back in an <laughs> April Sunday notes column. 
blew my mind. It, it started making its way. You, you'll get a kick out of this. That it when you wrote that, I, I had already been having a couple discussions, and I just thought, man, how did he know that? And sure enough, uh, we were sitting in a, a suite with all the baseball operations guys, and uh, our assistant GM Amiel Sade turns to me and goes, "Are you going to go run run the Hall of Fame?" And we all kind of laughed it off, and everybody had read the column and seen it. But uh, I was very impressed with your your sleuth work. That was uh, quite cool. Well, it was not sleuth work. <laughs> I do know John Shestakovsky over at the hall, you know, who was the head of communications there. But I did not ask uh, Shesta or anybody. I just started brainstorming, you know, possible candidates. John Thorne, I, of course, mentioned uh, prominently sure. in, in the column. But I basically went through who was in your position in Arizona, you know, the people throughout the league, because mm -hmm. that, to me, is a very good candidate. In people in corporate communications in baseball, that, that is a big part of the job at the Hall of Fame, correct? Yeah. Yeah, and ultimately that makes it more impressive that you weren't you weren't uh, floated the name. I mean, we the the last several presidents, obviously going back to Mead and and uh, Jeff Idelson, we did come from communications backgrounds, and I, I do think in a lot of ways what this role there, there's several things that it really is, um, but one of them is it's a relationship based role, and so being being able to to call whether it's any team, any Hall of Famer, club presidents, communications people at the teams. A lot of what what each of us, Jeff, Tim, and now myself, have done is have many decades of relationships around the game, and that's I think in a lot of ways what what made me an intriguing candidate, I guess, to the Hall of Fame. And ultimately, didn't take much for me to be intrigued by the position itself. It's just such an incredible place and such an an amazing institution that when the call came, it was certainly something uh, hard to really even believe is happening. And while Jeff knew you before you interviewed, and you know, I suppose he rec recommended you to the board of directors, at the same time, you still have to sit down with a group of people and talk about things like vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was and is your vision for the Baseball Hall of Fame going forward? Well, one of the things that I think all of us talk about more than anything is just continuing to stay relevant. That uh, as a historical institution, clearly you need to make sure that you're you're safeguarding all of these incredible items, documents, uh, telling the story, the history of baseball in the way that the last 200 years really merits it. But one of the things we talked a lot about, myself and, and Jane Forbes Clark, was just the, the need to stay relevant for the next generation and the way that that takes shape. I can't tell you exactly because I haven't been here that long yet. I don't know what we've already tried. I don't know what's been discussed. But ultimately, when I walked around the Hall of Fame for the first time with my son, uh, just a, basically about a month or so ago, right after the announcement, you start to see this institution through younger eyes, through a kid's eyes. And so in, in not, not too dissimilar from the way at, at individual teams, we have to figure out how to both cater to a season ticket base that that spends a lot of money to come and, and tends to be older that with disposable income, but also at the same time reach the, the next generation of fans. You can't put all of your eggs in either one of those baskets. And so I think a lot of what my vision and things we just discussed were how to continue to keep this place relevant for the next 82 years, we're 80, or 82 years old now, but frankly, the next couple hundred years. And that's what I'm just really looking forward to, to doing once we get past induction and can kind of take a breath. And the Hall of Fame is, of course, a museum. You have not been there long enough, obviously, to know what people are favoring when they do arrive, and COVID mm -hmm. certainly is, is affecting that as well. But from talking to people there, what are the most popular destinations when people walk into that building? Well, you're right. I mean, the, the key is, is different people 
like different things. And so what we often tell people to do when they come in is, is start upstairs. I mean, I will tell you that the, the thing that really blew my mind when sitting down and watching the video, uh, or it's, it's actually a movie, it's about an 18 minute movie called Generations of the Game. It actually moved me to tears the first time I watched it. And so it is just an incredibly well done film that is only available here at the Hall of Fame. And so generally speaking, the visit starts with a, a, a you go upstairs to the Grandstand Theater, you take in that film, that's kind of how you get going. And then as you make your way through the timeline, it really kind of depends on if you're the sort of person that likes the really, really old stuff from the mid-1800s. You see plenty of people hanging out in that area. But the Ideals and Injustices, which focuses on the integration of baseball and Negro Leagues and the, the black baseball experience or whether it's the, the, the women in baseball exhibit, there, there's, there's truly three floors of incredible exhibits and then ultimately we have people finish down on the bottom floor where the actual plaque gallery is which sometimes people think of the hall of fame as just the plaque gallery but it is it's so much more it's a it's a non-profit museum that uh it's a destination for hundreds of thousands of people every year right and that plaque gallery in mind a lot of people do not really look at the baseball hall of fame as a museum to the extent that if they haven't visited to them the hall of fame is who should have a, a plaque hanging there I don't think there are any listeners here who think that you have anything to do with who actually gets in, inducted, but maybe there are people out there who think that the, the president does have a role. Well, I, I certainly, from when I was announced in this position, I heard from a number of people who had opinions that they wanted me to help get this person in, or I had to make it clear that that isn't really. But I think most people kind of understand, certainly, that the way it does work is players go through that process of the BBWAA ballot five years after they retire and they're eligible for the next 10 years. And then if, if they don't get on there, there are all the era committees, um, which kind of cover multiple, there's four different ones. One that goes back to, to prior to 1950, it's called our early baseball committee. There's the golden days era committee, which is 1950 to 69. And then modern baseball is 1970 to 1987. And today's game is 1988 through the present. So each, each year we have a different, uh, one of those will come up and it, a group of scholars will put together a ballot. The Historical Oversight Committee will put together a ballot. And then from there, a group of, of 16 electors will determine if anybody who didn't get in through the, the BBWA process is worthy of uh, selection. So, yeah, I can't say that I have any role in, in who gets in there, but I have heard from a lot of people who have strong opinions. And that's what makes this Hall of Fame so fantastic is that you just so many strong opinions on, on both sides of many arguments. And we think at the end of the day that the process that's in place is how you ensure that you end up with really a, a very exclusive group. And uh, it, it really is. It's 1% of those who put on a uniform get to get into the Hall of Fame as a player. And there's just a handful of umpires and executives who make it as well. So pretty special group to, to be a part of. And with both the uh, BBWA voting and with the the era committees, a big question that always comes up with Hall of Fame worthiness is the meaning of the word fame in, in Hall of Fame. There are players, and I think we had this conversation once in passing, about players like Bill Mazeroski and Pi Trainer, who by modern metrics don't really, they're not quote unquote Hall of Famers statistically, but their fame when they played, you know, huge home runs defensive reputations were, were huge. And I know in your position, you can't comment on who should or should not be in the hall, but how important is fame to the equation? Yeah, I mean, I think it clearly plays a role. There's no doubt. And I think that's when you get 16 people at the caliber um, of the, the voters having that debate. I think that's what makes this 
so unique is you have to have 75% of that group, 12 of that 16 has to agree that they're, again, it's different when you're a player and you're talking about fame versus an executive or an umpire, but that is, that is at its core what the debate is. And we, we don't give very specific guidelines on how they should make their decisions. We, we do leave that up to those voters. But clearly, like you said, I think, uh, I think history has shown that fame does play a role in it. And that's as the debates continue to rage on. I would say that it's not exactly clear to every single person. That's what drives the debate. And I think that's what makes this place really, really cool. I know that with the, the era committees that there have been accusations of bias and you know personal feelings for players. Is there any way to to remove that? You know, maybe go more statistical in nature, which of course contradicts, you know, me saying that fame right. is very important. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we believe that in looking at all the different ways that you can go about this, that we have put together a, a system in place that does try to avoid that. Obviously, people are going to have opinions and, and humans are, are humans for a reason. So I, like I said, I think I think the belief right now is that the system in place is, is currently the best one. And what we're always doing is evaluating it over time. The era committees have changed. The, they've changed the, the the way they've operated and they date back, believe it or not, all the way to the beginning, of the very first class. It's been a part of the voting process since the very first class of electees in 1936. So I'm sure the debates have raged over the last eight decades and will continue on. But clearly, we try very hard to make sure that there isn't a bias in any one room or that defeats the purpose. I think the goal is to try to have unbiased people who still have opinions uh, and they all debate it. And, and as a group, they come out with a vote. And the, the next era committee voting will be happening when, Josh? Uh, this December, actually, we have um, the Golden Days, which, like I said, was from 1960 to, excuse me, 1950 to 1969. And then the group before that is the Early Baseball Group, which will also take into account um, Negro Leagues as they have recently been, as you know, Major League Baseball, and now including the, the Negro Leagues as one of the major leagues. So both of those groups will meet in this uh, in this December of 2021. And then the next two years and in, in, uh, we'll have the today's game group and the modern baseball group. So each it, it's a it's a pattern of of years that pass in between each era committee meeting. And it just so happens this year that we have two at the same time. That doesn't happen very often. Usually it's just one committee. And we are speaking on Wednesday, September 1st. One week from today, there is a fairly important event happening in mm -hmm. Cooperstown. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, it'll be the, the first induction that I've been a part of, but um, obviously it's been going on here for decades. And it's just, it is the signature event that Cooperstown puts on. It, it, I've been fortunate enough to attend two of them in, in 2014 uh, and in 2015. And you just watch this, this village of 2,100 people swell to just a, a pretty incredible basically mecca for baseball where like you said next week we'll have four inductees you've got Derek Jeter you've got Ted Simmons you've got Larry Walker and then uh, Marvin Miller being inducted posthumously and I think it's really just going to be a very very special day unfortunately we didn't get to have the ceremony last year because of COVID and this group would have been inducted last year as a class of 2020 and so now they're getting to get their day in the sun and have their chance to, to make speeches to thousands and thousands of baseball fans and then ultimately watch their plaques hang on the wall and it's just such a special it's not a weekend this year it's, it's happening on a Wednesday but next year we're hoping we'll be right back to normal at the same kind of last weekend in July every year the dates are all on the website if people want to plot out their their future vacations you certainly can try to figure out who's eligible what year and and if you ever want to come and see it i just can't recommend it more highly and how many people are expected on wednesday and how does that compare to pre-pandemic summers 
You know, it's it's been really, really hard to, to guess. I mean, there's just not a way of knowing, given obviously some the, the way that some people are comfortable traveling, others aren't. The fact that we do have an inductee like Derek Jeter, who under normal circumstances might have had a chance to to essentially help drive a record in attendance, it's it's fairly easy for people to drive up from from the city for the day and not even stay over. So where we normally can look at some of the metrics of hotels or buses, things of that nature, it's just, it's going to be really hard to predict. I'd hate to put a number on it and be totally off, but um, we think it's going to be a pretty, pretty impressive crowd out here. And uh, like I said, just give them the chance. And in so many ways, it's also, we felt it was important to have the ceremony um, the way that we normally do it, because we've also lost 10 Hall of Famers in the last year, which is just incredibly rare to lose that many. But bringing back um, close to 40 living Hall of Famers to come together, they absolutely love that opportunity to spend time together, honor the memory of the of the, the 10 that we've lost and just really get together. It's it's a pretty cool thing when you watch that kind of talent in one room. I'm just really looking forward to getting a chance to meet many of these people for the first time and be a fly on the wall for something that uh, people love being a part of. And with having lost so many Hall of Famers in the past year, something that has made Jay Jaffe's job uh, a little more difficult at Fangraphs <laughs> writing about these players. Yeah, is uh, Hall of Famers have served historically on the board of directors. I believe that the board of directors has had a little bit of shakeup, partly out of necessity in recent months. Yeah, we did lose several of our, our Hall of Fame board members, the, the vice chairman, Joe Morgan, um, among others. And so we did recently announce the, that we added three new players, Ken Griffey Jr., Tom Glavin, and Craig Biggio all joined the board alongside. It's a, it's an interesting group that isn't just players. I don't know if people realize it's it, it, there are team owners, including Ken Kendrick, who used to be the, or my boss at the Diamondbacks, the owner of the Diamondbacks, and the commissioner Rob Manfred's on that on that board of directors. You've got kind of leaders of industry, people like Harvey Schiller, Thomas Tull, who's a, a the movie producer that put together among many, many other movies, uh, 42. So it's a very, very interesting group of people who have uh, very diverse backgrounds, whether it's playing, working in the game, owning teams, or even those who, who are Cooperstown based and have a have a history here in the village. That's how we, we work with a group like that. And I think time has shown that this place has become pretty special thanks to the efforts of people on the board and the employees at the hall. And my hope is that I get to still continue uh, making that happen here in the years to come. You are the newest uh, Hall of Fame employee. How many people do actually work at the Baseball Hall of Fame? It's close to 100. I don't, know, I don't think most people realize that as I was explaining to people that I was going through the process. It's a nonprofit organization that, that has everything from a, a very robust curatorial department, as you can imagine, with the amount of artifacts and, and documents and things of that nature and the way we need to take care of them. That department is quite large. Um, we have charitable giving, so people who, who go out and seek donors and and of, of all sizes, membership, the, the kind of entry-level members all the way to large donors. We have a very, very cool education program that gets things out into the schools and then all the, the usual things you would think any company has from from PR and finance to IT. Um, all of those things uh, take place here. And so it's close to 100, 100 people um, total and then it swells, including part-time. During, during a typical induction summer, we could have as many as, as 250 with about 150 part-time people that come in and, and help out. So it's, it's quite a big company, and that's why I feel very, very fortunate to be in this position. And obviously a big part of this job is, is, is having the opportunity to help lead that group. 
And uh, I think I, I couldn't have learned from anybody better than, than Derek Hall at the Diamondbacks. And now I'm looking forward to taking all the things I learned at the Diamondbacks and Dodgers, putting them into, into action out here. And we are running short on time, Josh, but there are two more things that, that I wanted to ask you about. Sure. One is the upcoming induction is more than, than players. You know, the Ford Frick Award for Broadcasting you know, is always an important part of induction mm-hmm. day, as is what is now known as the BBWAA Career Broadcasting Award. So can you address the importance of, of those people? Oh, absolutely. We we actually had an entire weekend dedicated to them back in July, where we had the, the winners from both 2020 and 2021. Uh, we had a, a television event that was on MLB Network, uh, and, and it really was very special. As someone who came from a journalism family and, and who even was a reporter for a couple of years myself, being able to see someone like Dick Cagle go in to the Hall of Fame and, and the late Nick Cafardo was represented by his son and then broadcasters as well. Al Michaels was here as well as Hawk Harrelson. Those those people, the, the awards that we give them and these honors, I think are as meaningful to them and their industries as a player feels about uh, their fellow players. So um, very, very, it's not happening this coming week uh, because we did already do it, but you can find all the great stories from it online on, on, on our website. And I was not aware, Josh, that you did have reporter on your resume somewhere. Yeah, I was, a, I was a beat reporter covering the Dodgers in 2001 and the Giants in 2002 when MLB.com first started out. I was the first beat writer covering the Dodgers, and then I, I moved up to the Bay Area and covered the Giants in uh, all, 2002, got a chance to cover the World Series and All-Star Game and the Caribbean Series down in Venezuela. So strong writing background in my family and journalism's in my blood. I got a chance to do it for a couple of years and then, and then moved back to the Dodgers back in the PR world. Writing is a noble profession. <laughs> yeah, sure last, last question, Josh. You, of course, grew up a huge baseball fan as you, as you remain. So when you have walked into the Hall of Fame and gone in to look at the plaques, which one do you find yourself, have you found yourself standing in front of the longest thinking about his career? Oh, man. Um, I would say Jackie Robinson, for me, having grown up a Dodger fan and just what he represents, not just for baseball, but for American society and and everything that he stood for. Numerous times I found myself wandering over to that plaque. And in fact, this morning, I actually just took kind of the official photos that, that they had me take for headshots like you would at any other job. It's just a little different that here it's in the plaque gallery. Uh, and we did one in front of the Jackie plaque because it just means so much to me. But every, every one of those Hall of Famers is obviously equal in terms of um, their place in that plaque gallery. And part of what I like doing every day is finding about 10 minutes, 15 minutes to walk into the museum or the plaque gallery and just learn something new, whether it's look at a new exhibit case or or read a plaque from someone who I may not know from 100 years ago, nearly as well as the modern day stars. Uh, I'm just going to be taking in information nonstop over the years to come. And, and I just absolutely love doing it. And while all Hall of Famers are created equal, I think most fans would say that some are more equal than others. And if there is any who stands in that pantheon, I think Jackie Robinson probably does belong right up near the top. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, Josh, you have a lot of work to do in your new job, so I won't keep you any longer, but it was great to have you as a guest on Fangrass Audio. It's my pleasure. Thanks, David, and uh, look forward to seeing you at a ballpark here real soon. Ah! 
Hi, this is Dan Zimborski for Fangraphs Audio, and I'm joined today by my colleague Jay Jaffe. We're going to be talking today about the change in fortune of the Mets and the Yankees in the last two months. Two months ago, the Yankees were struggling to be around 500. They were 41 and 40, nine and a half games back, fourth in the in the AL East, and the Mets were in first place. Today, the opposite is true. The Mets have had some excitement this week, but compared to where they were two months ago, they are kind of in the depths and their playoff fortunes are fading, let's just say. While the Yankees <laughs> have been cruising, they had a long winning streak. And they look like the team we thought they, they were at the beginning of the season. Thanks for coming in to talk some Yankees and, and Mets, Jay. Hey, Dan. Good to be here. Always good to talk baseball with you. Now, since we want to do positive things first, because we don't, <laughs> want, to be too, we don't want to be too mopey, let's talk about one of the surprise contributors for the Yankees, Nestor Cortez Jr. I mean, we could talk about Gallo, Rizzo, but Cortez has rocked it this year. Uh, so you have some stuff in the works. So why don't you give us some scoops here? Yeah. Okay. So Nestor Cortez Jr. is a, is a former 36th round draft pick by the Yankees and a former Rule 5 pick by the Orioles, who was who only pitched four games for them before being returned to the Yankees. Uh, he then eventually got traded to the Mariners uh, after spending a, a season as a kind of up and down guy, uh, shuttling back and forth to AAA eight times, I think it was. It looked like, you know, your basic quad A pitcher with a six plus career FIP and ERA coming into the year. It's just not a guy who, I, you know, I don't I don't even know if, if you had a, a, a Zips projection for him. I had to look. He had one of those one inning steamer placeholder projections, the kind that uh, nobody ever sees unless unless you go looking for it to, conf, you know, as, as proof of life. So he wasn't listed in our depth charts anywhere, but uh, he came up in May. Did some great work out of the bullpen, some uh, good like long relief stints that helped the Yankees get back in games after their starters had faltered. And then, you know, interestingly enough, right at the sort of the intersection that, that you uh, teased at the start of the segment, he crossed paths with the Mets on the second, the second game of the July 4th doubleheader between the Yankees and the Mets. When the Yankees were exactly 41 and 41, they gave Cortez his first start of the year and he pitched pretty well. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a long stint, but uh, three and a third innings, one run, four strikeouts, no walks. And with the exception of breakthrough COVID infection that caused him a stint on the injured list and then a, uh, a tune-up uh, relief appearance, he's been in the rotation ever since, and he's become one of the team's most reliable starters against all odds. This is a, a you know a five eleven, two hundred and ten pound lefty who has a fastball that only averages a little over ninety miles an hour, but he has, as I learned, has a, a very interesting bag of tricks that have uh, helped his stuff play up and have made him something of a cult favorite here. Now, I, I checked, and I actually did not project Nestor Cortez Jr. coming into the season. That kind of gives you know credence to just how out of the blue it is i actually should have projected him since he did pitch last year but i projected more than 1300 pictures and cortez wasn't among them he wasn't in our depth charts anywhere at the start of the season so you can say he came out of nowhere and one of the things i'd argue is that this is a good example of of kind of how modern let's say modern minor league journeyman management teams yeah. i believe are much better at not you know writing the books on players in pen. You always want to give players opportunities to prove you wrong. And I think that someone like Cortez has a better chance to do that than they would have even 20 years ago. And we even were, you know, at the start of, you know, the, the, the stat nerdiness revolution at the time. But a guy like Cortez, if he pitched in 1990, I think he would have been typecast and he'd 
permanently be a AAA picture. So I think this is a sign of progress to see teams take chances like this and a team that's in contention, too. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I heard from a couple of people after I uh, you know after I published the piece yesterday that he was on other teams' radars, uh, both you know in major league teams and also uh, foreign leagues. And I won't uh, divulge any, any any confidences here, but you know there there were definitely talent evaluators who who could see the raw material there. And, and you know as as you sort of hinted at there, we're in an age where you know player performance is so much more malleable because players get so much better feedback through analytics uh, that they can ch- that they can change and and there was a, a really good example of this that I discovered when I was when I was looking at uh, Cortez and and he got it he basically he got himself a new curveball this spring and it was with the help of the Yankees pitching staff and Matt Blake their new pitching uh, coach he had a curveball that he rarely used last year when he only made uh, five appearances totaling seven and two-thirds innings didn't even make it out of the first inning in his final start got just hammered by the Astros but he went from having a curveball that was, you know, had a more traditional downward path. He wanted something that, in his words, was sweep bigger and sweepier. And so now he's got something that actually Pitch Info classifies as a slider. Statcast classifies it as a, as a curve. He calls it a curve. So we're we're sticking with that designation here. Uh, but it gets much more horizontal movement, and it's been. You know, I wouldn't say it's been a hugely effective pitch, except that it works well within the context of his repertoire. He's uh, it works very well against righties. It doesn't work so well against lefties. But he did get Shohei Otani out with it twice on back-to-back days just before he moved to the rotation. Uh, this was back in late June. So right there is a good example of of just how malleable this this kind of stuff is. The other thing about him, you know, he he has you know instead of having a ninety mile an hour fastball that that rarely deviates he's got a range he like he deliberately uses a range of, of fastballs range from about 87 to 93 um you know and and art comes at comes at these guys with different arm angles sometimes over the top sometimes more three quarters for the piece i was able to put together some 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 examples including one you know ones where he had uh, uh bryce harper with two fastballs that were about six or seven miles an hour apart in consecutive at bats uh in a june game against the phillies and with Otani, he differing release heights uh, for his curveball and got, you know, the presumptive AL MVP out twice. So it's been the raw material was there. He always had a little bit of funk, you know, funkiness in, in his delivery and uh, uses some some kind of Johnny Cueto like hesitations in there as well to mess with batters. Um, he's just it's all come together with him. And it's really kind of neat to see. Yeah. The Yankees now lead the American League in ERA. And that's kind of the opposite coming into the season of what we would have expected. No, we didn't expect the rotation to struggle, but we kind of thought that the that the offense would be fine and the pitching would be fine if it was healthy because there were a lot of questions based on some of the members of the rotation coming in. And pretty much everyone but Cole had some kind of injury history. Uh, but the offense, you know, has struggled for large chunks of the season. And strangely, despite their winning ways, their biggest pickup, Joey Gallo, has not really been an offensive force with the Yankees. He's kind of been big Kevin Kiermeyer for the <laughs> Yankees, which is it's not what I expected. Yeah, he's gotten he's gotten a few big hits. And when I checked in on him uh, last week, I, I, I wrote about the the what, what uh, Aaron Boone called the jumbo package, uh, which is the largest <laughs> outfield in Major League history with uh, uh, Gallo in in left field, Aaron Judge. 
uh, playing out of position in center, and Giancarlo Stanton uh, dusting off his glove to play in right field. And all three of these guys are actually very good fielders, including Gallo, who said, you know, I'm actually, I actually rate better as a fielder than I do as a hitter at one point last year. This was a piece at the uh, the Athletic that uh, Levi Weaver did. But uh, at the time, Gallo at least had a positive WPA, you know, even though he was hitting like, you know, 140-something or whatever and, and, and really struggling uh, in terms of the overall picture. He's striking out a ton, which is something he had worked hard to cut down. And, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't really looked too closely at what's going on because you don't want to obsess over just a few plate appearances. But it's been a bit of a mess for him so far offensively. And, and I think the good news is that, the, you know, his teammates have helped to pick up the slack. This latest four-game losing streak, I think, is, is you know, maybe a bit uh, disheartening because they just won 13 in a row and start, we're starting to look like something of a powerhouse. But, you know, the offense has, has just generally been very uneven. It's uh, uh, really a middle-of-the-pack offense that, that hits a lot of home runs but, but doesn't have a ton of power elsewhere you don't see as many doubles as as you used to we haven't you know we've seen a lot of guys like Gary Sanchez actually as we speak here on Wednesday Gary Sanchez just ended his longest career homerless streak in terms of games uh, just last night Luke Voigt has only eight homers so it hasn't been uh, the offensive dynamo that, that, that it was in years past and they've had to figure out how to win in other ways and that hasn't always uh worked for them I am a fan of the jumbo outfield because to some people it might sound preposterous, but it isn't really. Uh, Gallo, of course, is a terrific corner outfielder defensively. There's there's kind of this variant of Nichols' law of catcher defense in which, you know, <laughs> slugging corner outfielders who are big must be poor uh, defensive players. But Aaron Judge is also a very good corner outfielder. Having him play center in the short term is not as preposterous as it sounds. Uh, it almost makes me think of, in a way, uh, the 1986 Mets. Hopefully I'm not mangling the anecdote, but <laughs> you saw, you know, Howard Johnson and, and, and Kevin Mitchell at shortstop sometimes. Uh, when when Sid Fernandez was pitching because they didn't you know expect as many ground balls right and Judge is a better center fielder than I think uh, Howard Johnson was a shortstop and mm. Stanton was really you know in his early days with the Marlins he was an excellent defensive corner outfielder the question about him has been more injury than any kind of defensive incompetence they're just trying to keep him healthy it's not that he he can't play the position uh and you know that gets another bat in the lineup and the yankees that do not have a lot of depth in the center right now brett gardner we'll just say meh. Brett gardner's been dead for two years <laughs> yeah they 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 found you know earlier said it was better to get rid of a player a year too early than a year too late I think the Yankees found that year too late for for Gardner, unfortunately, which is too bad because he's been you know such a part yeah. of the team for the last fifteen years almost. Now this is the fourteenth year, fifteen. I don't I think know. it came up oh, oh eight or I think it came up in oh eight. Yeah, yeah, it, it's been a long so, time. Yeah, it's been forever. Would you have expected in two thousand eight that that Gardner would be the final? current player on the Yankees not not Cano not uh, Chamberlain was young then would, yeah would, would you Hughes. have been surprised it was Gardner no I, I mean I, yes I would have been surprised because at that point he looked you know he looked like a very a, a very light he did, he slugged 299 that year in 2008 you know in in, in uh, 141 plate appearances that's not a guy who you who you, you think is going to stick around but he's had you know he's had a really 
very good career. And, and you know, only one all-star appearance, one gold glove, which is kind of funny because I've never thought of him as a great fielder. But, you know, did a lot of things pretty well, ran the bases pretty well, got, took his walks, you know, was able to, to play center field and play left field, which, you know, people forget that Yankee Stadium has this asymmetry and the, the makeup area for the for the short right field porch is a cavernous uh, left field uh, that really requires somebody with some serious athleticism to cover if you're going to do it well. You can't just stick, uh, you know, a lummox out there and expect him to uh, to be able to handle it, which is why Gallo is playing, you know, playing left field out there because, you know, he, he is athletic. And Stanton is, is, is a good athlete too, Judge, obviously. So, you know, this is – it does take some work to cover that ground out there. And it's really only been because of the injuries – to you know the seemingly constant injuries to to Stanton and Judge that they've been steered towards more time at DH. It's been oh we've got to keep these guys healthy and and I think maybe lost sight of the advantages of you know keeping a guy healthy by keeping him active and and you know not sitting on the bench and getting cold between every at bat. Now, as we're discussing this, the Yankees are on a four-game losing streak, but it comes after a long winning streak, 13 games. And they still find themselves with a three-game lead over Oakland for what would be the second wildcard spot. Uh, right now, it would be Yankees and Red Sox in, uh, in one very exciting wildcard game. Have we had one of those yet? Have we had a Yankees-Red Sox play-in game yet? No, we haven't. We've had we've had Yankees Red Sox uh, postseason series, obviously, but not uh, not not a play in game, as, as, at least as far as I can remember. And I th- you'd think I would remember this stuff. <laughs> well, we both reached the age where our memories are fading quickly. <laughs> Soon, we're going to be taking notes everywhere we go. That's what my grandfather did when when his memory started, you know, not being as sharp as it used to be. He had a little notepad and he left thousands of notes around that house. I'm I'm not there yet, but I think we're we're well on the way. Sadly, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it's it's. I think it's. I think part of it's just you know you cover baseball for so long and you re- try to remember so many things and something gets crowded out of out of something else because you're you know you're trying to keep track of thirty teams and all these players and have a good you know at least to some passing notion of what every team is doing at any given moment and the ability to talk about them with sounding somewhat authoritative. <laughs> For, for me, one of the largest problems is players who had a parent that played in the majors in the 80s or 90s, because I will inevitably call them by their dad's name at many times. I've called, I've had several articles where I've had uh, Meg notice that I had written instead of Cody Bellinger, Clay Bellinger. Clay. Yeah, oh yeah. And I've called both Romines Kevin Romine because of the Red oh, Sox boy. outfielder. That Kevin uh, Romine's a deep cut. <laughs> It is, but it was just the right age for me. Uh, Late 80s, I was 11 in 1989 when the Orioles had their why not season. So I remember everyone who was in 1989 really well. That's that's where I live now. 1989. (laughs) We 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 didn't have to wear masks and and the Internet was slow and barely existing. Yeah, I'm I'm about 10. I'm about 10 years ahead of you, but I never never mistook Nick Swisher for Steve Swisher. I I probably (laughs) would if I was a little bit older. Uh, but yeah. now some things that people would like to forget is Mets fans probably <laughs> would like to forget how the season's gone since the trade deadline. On the day of the trade deadline, the Mets beat the Reds five to four in 10 innings. At that point, they were 55 and 48 and up four games in the L East. 
They had picked up Javier Baez. They had added some pitching depth. There were a lot of reasons for Mets fans to be happy with the team at that point. And Mets fans, let's be honest, there's a there's a bit of self-immolation in the character of a Mets fan. But it, it was looking pretty positive. But today, even after a three-game winning streak that had a huge comeback in the, in the ninth inning, the five runs, Baez redeemed himself they're you know in third place they're below 500 and it's looking like that the Mets are going to have to probably win the division to to make the playoffs if the Mets make the playoffs it's probably gonna have to be by the wild card and you know they're behind the Phillies they're behind the Cardinals now they would have to you know catch up five and a half games on the Reds and the Padres so that is a problem for the Mets and they look a lot the last month like the New York mess as they're always caused how much hope is there left for the Mets I mean is there ever any hope for the Mets I, I don't look I, I I'm watching all this all that went down in the past several days I mean I, I said this you know if the Mets didn't exist we would have to make them up just to feel better about our own various levels of dysfunction there's just you know they've changed ownership but they're still just as prone to gaffes and just these groaner moments and seemingly unable to to bring back an injured player on any kind of schedule with any kind of reliability these things are just still are common to the Wilpon era and you know you just you just slap your forehead and i think you know it sometimes it feels as though mets fans really don't know any other way but this sort of this you know level of agita and unhappiness and it's just this kind of stockholm syndrome that they, by which they're rooting for the team but you know just to get back to the trade deadline for a second there was there was that moment of optimism after they got javi baez when things were looking up and then about an hour after the trade deadline we heard that oh jacob degrom has suffered a setback and Boy, you know, Rich Hill and Trevor Williams, I think that was, yeah, really aren't going to be enough to cover for, you know, another month without DeGrom. And suddenly this looked a lot, this looked a lot less uh, rosy than it, than it did, you know, especially when we heard about the the uh, uh, rumors of, of them trying to get Bryant, but then cutting short on that as well uh, as part of that deal with the Cubs. And it's just been a downward spiral ever since they were six games, oh, sorry, seven, like you said, seven games above 500 heading into deadline day. And now they're two below 500 and just, just a lot of drama, you know, and it's all year long. There are just things that have not gone right for them. Even things that you would have expected to go right, like Francisco Lindor joining the team and being, you know, an, an above average player. He really struggled early in the year offensively. He's been very good defensively. Jeff McNeil, who's, uh, had been one of their top hitters for the f last few years since coming up and really, you know, an organizational success story uh, has has really struggled this year, has like three months uh, just running hot and cold every month. I think uh, August he had a 50 WRC plus, for example, and this, he had he had one even lower than that earlier this year. You know, Michael Conforto hasn't hit to expectations. Uh, they lost a lot of time to injuries to, J to J.D. Davis. James McCann has gotten hurt. The rotation, the Carlos Carrasco acquisition hasn't worked out. There's just so many things that have gone wrong, and I feel badly because there, you know, there was there was a point there where they were really, even despite their injuries, they were staying in first place. And really, a lot of that I think was 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 smoke and mirrors. It was because the Braves were were reeling, having lost uh, Marcel Ozuna and Mike Soroka and some other guys, and just you know, a lot of guys not performing to expectations. And then they lost when they lost once they lost Ronald Acuna Jr. You know, it seemed like things were really going to break in the Mets' favor, but that hasn't been the case. And the Braves actually did a pretty solid job of shoring themselves up at the deadline 
line, just totally remaking that outfield. They got uh, Jock Peterson actually in, in, in mid-July, and then they got Adam Duvall and Jorge Soleil. And they also have Eddie Rosario, who still hasn't come back from injuries. But that sort of gave them at least an average, average-ish baseline for out, for production in the outfield. Meanwhile, guys like Dansby, Dansby Swanson and Freddie Freeman heated up, and they basically just you know have left the Mets in the dust. And so it's been just kind of, uh, I think, you know, any anytime, anytime the Braves are up, you know, Mets fans are even that much more down. And I think all of this has just sort of compounded their recent misery here. We have a dispatch from the Fangrass <laughs> News Desk. Just in now, Wednesday, when we're talking, uh, Mets GM Zach Scott was busted for drunk driving in White Plains coming back from Steve Cohen's house. That is the word on the street and at our news desk. It's almost like like they're making new dysfunction for us to talk about. <sighs> how, do you, how do you feel about this, Jay? I mean, you know, I'm struggling to wrap my head around this. It's, you know, when we talk about the Mets... You know, one thing that I that I mentioned previously in this segment is that, you know, a lot of the dysfunction from the Wilpon era has carried over and it's in the off field level. I mean, it's you know, they've they've got a collection of good players. I've argued for years that their roster is a collection of mismatched parts, you know, especially what, you know, both in the infield and the outfield. But, you know, some of the some of the mistakes they make are are, are off the field. And, and unfortunately, one of the real common, you know, common factors there is is the uh, persistence of Sandy Alderson, who, you know, probably has, is, you know, in terms of the entirety of his career is probably, you know, a guy who should draw consideration for the Hall of Fame, you know, as an executive, but who has been at the helm for now. Uh, a few major gaffes and some organizational rot that really, uh, you know, should not have carried over uh, from the Cohen regime. The Jared Porter situation, you know, the the Mickey Calloway situation. All of this reflects badly. You know, Zach Scott was, you know, was only the acting is only the acting general manager because the Mets hired and then fired Jared Porter in the span of I think it was about five weeks in January and February when when the sexual harassment backstory came out, but. I mean, this is just, you know, if you don't have good leaders, it's very tough to build a good organization. And it's very clear right now that the Mets do not have good leaders. You can understand that, you know, Steve Cohen coming in last winter did not have time to do the full organizational remake that was probably due. But this is just another black eye for the organization. And and, uh, I'm sure it almost certainly seals the deal that, that Scott will not be the next GM. I mean, I think you probably have to have to plot to find a, a new uh, uh, president of baseball operations and start there uh, and work your way down to uh, general manager and and uh, perhaps a new manager as well. Um, and this just, I think, only underscores the need for a, a fuller house cleaning. One of the things that, that the Mets remind me of is kind of almost that the feeling of a Mets fan is kind of that Russian fatalism that you see in their media. There was a <laughs> yeah. there was a 1930 Soviet comedy about about the Tsar's era uh, called Lieutenant Kuzha. It was about essentially a list of officers to be promoted was sent to Emperor Paul. And because of an error from one of the people making the list, the emperor promoted a person who didn't exist, creating that person's existence. Uh, so Lieutenant <laughs> Kije, they had to actually give him like a life because they couldn't admit to the emperor that he didn't <laughs> actually exist. So he had a career and eventually they had to kill off now General Kije. And they had to have a whole state funeral for him. He didn't know the coffin was empty. <laughs> and that kind of feels like something the Mets would do. 
And here's the thing. I'm not sure that Noah Syndergaard actually still exists. Yeah, Because need... every time he's about to come back, something new happens. And I'm a little suspicious. Yeah, we might need a proof of, a proof of life uh, on, on Noah Syndergaard here. He's, uh, he's certainly been hard to pin down, but... Oh. I, I just I'm still just gobsmacked by all of this. The, the fact that we're recording this and and, and the Mets have just kind of <laughs> moved another pitch right down our alley here. Boy, I yeah I, I don't know what to say, but uh, good luck with that, Mets. Uh, and and boy, the uh, uh, the tabloids are going to continue shredding this team just as they have all season. I think before we finish, uh, our producer, uh, the esteemed Dylan Higgins, is going to tell us that some pitcher has had just had Tommy John surgery. <laughs> oh, I hope not. <laughs> Do you think over under how many innings the Cinder Guard pitch this year? Does he get into at least a game? Yeah, I think he. I think he will. Honestly, I think. I think he's going to be a reliever. I think he's going to, you know, maybe be back for you know a couple weeks. I think it's mo- mostly just to show that he can still throw a baseball very hard. I suspect he's probably going to need to come back to the Mets via some kind of pillow contract or whatever in order to to reestablish his market after missing uh, almost two seasons. You know, to get the the free agent payday that he probably would merit if he were healthy although who knows i mean you know what uh you know we 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 really do need to see whether he's still got all the magic that that he had in in that uh, thunderbolt of a right arm well we've just about run out of time so this point of very slight kind of sad optimism seems like a good place to end things (laughs) for the day thanks for joining me jay to talk some mets and yankees uh and thanks to the listeners out there to joining us on fangraphs audio and for fangraphs audio i'm dan zaborski this has been fangraphs audio thank you to josh rowich for joining us and thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the program Make sure to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter to keep up with all the cool things we have going on at the site. And if you have any feedback on the show, you can always leave us a comment or review, or you can reach out to me, Dylan Higgins, on Twitter at DHHiggins. We appreciate all of your support, and we couldn't and wouldn't do it without you. Have a good weekend, and we'll talk to you next week.